you can go ahead and turn to John 21. John 21. It, it is National Day weekend. Uh, it's, it's the most patriotic weekend of the year here in the United Arab Emirates. Maybe some of you decorated your cars. 52 years as a nation. 51 for Ras al-Khaimah. Got in one year late. I do genuinely enjoy this weekend, personally. And I, I don't know, my brain may work differently, but I do like to think about what's called alternate history. So asking the question, what if this had never happened? So what if the union of the trucial states had not happened? What if Ras al-Khaimah had not joined the union? Well, we might not be here this morning. If we were here, you know, you wouldn't have the day off tomorrow, students. I'm actually living through an alternate history this weekend myself. Personal confession. I was convinced because the papers said it that there would be a discount in traffic fines. And I'm living in the alternate history where there are none. There are events that we take so for granted because we live on the other side of them that we fail to see what it would have been like to live through them the first time when, when everything wasn't certain, when there would have been decisions, there would have been questions, there would have been confusion about what the future would look like. You, you know this well, March 2020, no one had seen something like that happen before. We had no idea what the next months, years would entail. We were totally uncertain. What's so certain to us now looking back wasn't then. As you think about Christianity, we, we, we see so clearly as we read the Gospels, the, the confusion, the lack of clarity, the uncertainty that the disciples had, not just about the cross and the, the resurrection, but after Jesus was raised. Certainly, we could ask the question, what if Jesus had not been raised? Well, we would live in a world right now that would be dramatically different than the world we live in. What if things had been different after Jesus was raised from the dead? The disciples said very clearly, we have seen the Lord. But as you read the account, it's very clear they're not sure what it meant what they were supposed to do in, in light of that. So the risen Jesus very carefully put the pieces of that puzzle together for them. And that's what he's doing in our text this morning. John 21, 1 through 14. I'm going to read this for us now. John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish, fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, here's the main point I want you to take away from this text. As the resurrected Lord, as the resurrected Lord, Jesus can be trusted for provision for the mission. As the resurrected Lord, Jesus can be trusted for provision for the mission. He can be trusted for provision for the mission. I'll approach this text just a little differently today. I'm just going to work through it, and then I'm going to give you some application that we should take away from it. Now, when we come to this passage, the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem. They've gone back to Galilee, and we know that because they are, verse 1, at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. It was there that Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously. It was there that he walked on water, and it's there in verse 2 that John tells us there's seven disciples at this sea. He names them. Peter and Thomas, we saw last week, faith and doubt. Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, the author of the, 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 this passage, the whole book. And then these two other disciples. Now, what's striking is that in the midst of these resurrection appearances that we've seen in the last chapter and are hearing, uh, seeing here now, what's striking is what's going on here is just so normal. Peter, verse 3, is about to go fishing. Other disciples are going with him. No longer are the disciples outside of Jerusalem hiding behind locked doors. They're back in Galilee. They are, in one sense, back to very normal life. They're doing what normal people do. Now, this has actually led to some disagreement among various people who have said that these disciples to whom Jesus had already said received the Holy Spirit and he had commissioned. Some say this is evidence of their apostasy, that they're going back to their old fishing life. Now, others, I think, take a far more sensible view of this and say that the disciples just simply need to eat. These disciples are about 
ordinary life because these disciples are very unclear about what's going on and what they're to do. They're fishermen. They're in Galilee. They're there because we know from Mark's gospel, John, Jesus told them to go there. And they were fishing at night. Now, night was the normal time for fishing in the ancient world so that fishermen could sell the fish fresh at the market in the morning. But we've been going through this gospel for some time, and we are aware that in John's gospel again and again, when things happen at night, there's people in darkness, people who fail to see Jesus. That's what's happening here. After a night of fishing with disciples, catch nothing. Verse four, Jesus is on the shore. Day is breaking. Light has not fully broken in. So it's reasonable that they didn't recognize him. They didn't know it was Jesus. Now, the disciples are not spiritually blind. It would have been especially dark at daybreak, but they were in the dark in a number of ways. They weren't seeing Jesus, and they weren't seeing the world as they were meant to. And so Jesus very plainly just calls out from the shore in verse five, children, do you have any fish? I mean, the sense of this is boys or or lads, you haven't caught any fish? Of course they haven't. So he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they cast it. I think, and probably a concern as we read this story so fast, it's so ingrained in your mind what history is that you miss what's happening here. I mean, why in the world would fishermen who really know what they're doing listen to some guy on the shore that they don't recognize? He's giving them fishing advice. Now, if you're like me, I certainly know what it's like when I'm driving and someone gives me driving advice. I don't love that. I don't love a backseat driver. And I'm pretty sure I'm not a fisherman, that these fishermen didn't like backseat fishermen. I bet they didn't just normally take advice from random people they didn't recognize on the shore. But I think that they're desperate. They're hungry. They're fatigued. And it's a surprise that they cast their net. In verse 6, they so many fish, they can't haul it in. It's at that moment in verse seven that they go from verse four, they don't recognize him to verse seven, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recognizing him and proclaiming to Peter, to others, it is the Lord. Simon Peter just throws himself into the sea and goes to Jesus. Now, just the fact that he puts on his outer garment tells us that when fishing, most likely they they stripped down to uh, probably maybe next to nothing, but tied their clothes around them or or were more stripped down while they were fishing. Certainly what we are meant to see is this is very much an eyewitness account, the detail here. And even when Peter goes to the shore, notice that the eyewitness does not follow Peter in verse eight, but stays behind and gives us the perspective from the boat. The boat dragging the net full of fish behind the boat. It would have been hard work as they rowed in 100 yards. That's 91 and a half meters from the land. 
And when they get there, Jesus has already started a fire. He's already cooking fish. Fish he had brought to the breakfast. And then he tells the disciples in verse 10, bring some of your fish. Simon Peter does that hurriedly in verse 11, and there's 153 of them. Now, there has been no insignificant amount of debate about what 153 fish mean. What, what does the number mean? I genuinely think there's nothing significant about it other than that's the number of fish that they caught. They were fishermen. It was an extraordinary amount of fish that they caught after not catching anything all night. Wouldn't you want to count how many fish you caught? There's so much specificity here down to the fact that the net was not torn. And it is meant to communicate to the church, to anyone who's skeptical, how reliable the account is. What does Jesus do? He simply says in verse 12, come and have breakfast. It's just so ordinary. He is the extraordinary risen Lord. And he does ordinary things. And so the disciples don't ask him, who are you? They know it's the Lord. It was Jesus who'd come to give them bread and fish. We have to ask, why did John include this? John, who has so carefully structured his gospel with signs and witnesses to Jesus, why? So that you might believe in Jesus and have life in the name of Jesus. He wasn't haphazard in including this account. Why? Well, you're meant to see that what Jesus did here would affect the very mission of the disciples, and so history itself, as we know it. What Jesus did after the resurrection was a deliberate act of revelation. That's the first reality I want you to see from this text. Revelation. Revelation. We were made to live in this world as revelation receivers. We live by truth revealed, not reasoned toward. We do not reason our way to God, just as in a relationship with me, I must reveal myself to you so that you would know me and you to me. God must speak. He must reveal himself to us. He must reveal the reality of the world to us. And this was a deliberate act of revelation by Jesus. We know this because of the way John structures the account. Look at verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples and he revealed himself in this way. Then go to verse 14. John ends this account. This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It was a purposeful act by Jesus for the good of his disciples and his church. It's not just this account that is concerned with revelation. The whole gospel of John is concerned with revelation. It's how the gospel started. For the action, the drama plays out for the world to see, 
John, remember, started by taking us behind the scenes to meet the one who was the word. And this word was with God. And in telling us that, we learned that the word is distinct from God. And the word was God. Word is God. And John revealed to us that the whole world was created through the word. He told us that there's life in the word and that this word is the light who comes into the dark world, even though strangely, the dark world did not know him and did not recognize him. The light who was with God and is God came into the world to reveal, to make the father known. The entire gospel is revealing to you the ultimate realities of the world in which you live. And this gospel is one in which you are meant to see Jesus, who he's like, what he's like, and so to learn about God the Father. And so it is with this account. He revealed himself in this way. It's not just an interesting story or a strange story about fish being multiplied. It is a revealing of reality. Remember in this gospel, Jesus conceals himself from those who will not believe him. But to those who believe, he reveals more and more. Do remember that about Jesus. Trusting Jesus leads you to see more and more of Jesus. To see more of his glory, to trust him even more, and to live rightly in his world. But when you refuse him, be warned, it leads to more and more blindness. And you'll live in this world as an, as an illusion, not in the reality that it is. Before we do get to Jesus, I want to see what's revealed about the disciples. The disciples. First, they're so ordinary. They do such ordinary things. They, they do lower class things. They're wrestling with what's going on in the world. And who they are as men who fish to eat and survive is it's not hidden. There's nothing that the world would have seen in these disciples that would have been significant. We can be so used to history or what's claimed in Christianity, if you're not a Christian, that we fail to put ourselves in their shoes. They were living this in real time. And it's so obvious that they have no idea that they are being swept up into the very center of God's purposes for history. It is so like the Lord to work in this way with such ordinary people who do ordinary things in their lives, who are a bit lost. The risen Jesus is very deliberately revealing himself, not to the great ones of this world, but to these ordinary disciples John's not hiding their flaws. He doesn't hide who they were as such ordinary men and their confusion. I look down at verse 12. Notice this strange paradox. They know it's the Lord. And John says, none of them dared to ask him, who are you? We're so used to the fact of the resurrection and they weren't. He doesn't say they did not ask. 
He says they dared not ask what they wanted to ask. Is it really you, Lord? Do you see how they, how they need time? They need time to understand. They need more revelation to understand the significance of the resurrection. We don't learn that about them when Lazarus was raised. This is different. Lazarus was raised back into his, his own fallen body. Mortal flesh. Jesus was raised as the first fruits into a glorified, resurrected body. The son of God in power. And so John here depicts for us who they were as ordinary men who are encountering the risen Christ and all his fullness of glory and power in some way so different than who he was before. There is some kind of awesomeness about him that creates a fear, a, a, a nerve, nerve, maybe some angst in them. They're also so consistent in their personalities. You remember back at the empty tomb, John saw the fact of the empty tomb. He, he believed, he discerned what he was seeing there. It's John here in verse 7 who after this large quantity of fish discerns and he declares that the man on the shore is the Lord. And of course, Peter, he was the one who was so bold and aggressive to declare to the Lord that he would lay his life down for him. He's the one who immediately cut off the, the ear of the high priest's servant when they were coming to arrest Jesus. He's the first to impetuously jump into the water to go to Jesus when John declared, it's the Lord. He denied him without thinking. He jumps in the water to go to him. John discerns. Peter rushes in. Now, are you catching that? He who denied him knew he could jump out of that boat. He could leave the disciples behind. He could go to Jesus. Peter feels absolutely no hesitation to run to Jesus, whom he had so publicly denied. It is their ordinariness, ordinariness, their love for him. It's their sheer joy in seeing him that just stands out with all of their questions, with all that they didn't understand, that they wanted to figure out what do we see about the disciples? They want to be with Jesus. Now, what about you? I am convinced that there's not one person here who does not understand this. In this way, it's Christmas, and in the next week, some of you are going to see family. Some of your family is coming here. And if I were to talk to you, you could tell me facts all day long about your family. But what you want is to be with them. You want to be in their presence, them in your presence, when there's no agenda, that the conversation can go in all kinds of different directions. You just want time together. That is the difference in knowing about Jesus and loving Jesus. The disciples have not worked out all the implications of who he is. They don't have a defined Christology yet. That's coming. But they want to be with Jesus. 
because they love Jesus. Now, I would wonder for all of us, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you've just come to faith in Jesus Christ, I wonder if you can look back on a time in your life when you remember you just loved Jesus. And I wonder if that warmth and that love and that fire has cooled down. If you've settled for knowledge about him and lost your love for him. Some of you labor in ministry. How easy it is to professionalize the faith and lose genuine love as a disciple for your Lord. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, we are all, all of us, fundamentally sheep who need the shepherd. Disciples before we are anything else, whether that's pastor, whether that's ministry worker, whether that's someone who's crossed an ocean for the gospel, whatever, what you do changes. Who you are in Christ never changes. Now, if you've been around here for some time, if you're one of the members of our body, you would know well my concern for a doctrinally sound church. Doctrine guards the gospel. It provides ballast for the ship. It guards our joy. It grows our joy. Doctrine matters. And doctrine is not enough. Head and heart. Don't lose your love for Jesus. I mean, just like you love to be with your family or your spouse or your friend. Spend time with Jesus just because you love Jesus. Never ever move beyond, but go deeper in. He loved me and he gave himself for me. For whatever the disciples don't know at this point, they know they love him and they know he loves them. As you spend time with him, as you meditate on who he is, as you enjoy him, that will radiate out to others. When we abide with Jesus, it makes us more fruitful in the gospel. It's so clear the disciples love Jesus and they know his love for them. That's what he's revealing to them. This is so much more than a feeding miracle. The the, the days when he did signs to show him he was the Messiah are over. Now he's communicating and teaching them who he is as the resurrected Lord. He is Lord and God. And he is revealing himself intentionally to the disciples on whom he knows he's about to build his church and through whom he will carry out his mission to the world. And he wants them to know who he is as he ascends to the Father. His revelation to them is critical to their understanding he will provide for the mission. And he's revealing himself to them in this way to show them, I am the resurrected Lord who will provide for you abundantly. Physical needs, spiritual needs. He let them struggle all through the night so that all would seem lost. And he just happened to be on the shore at daybreak. He goes to his disciples. They were fatigued. They were panicked. Panicked. And there he was, meeting them in their need. 
He was there as the risen Lord to do for them what they could not do for themselves. There in verse 12, even though they were on the shore, it caused some kind of hesitation, fear with them. They were fearful to come to them. And he says, come and have breakfast. That's what the risen Savior is like. Inviting them to him. He wants them with him. He will feed them. He will meet their needs. And so the disciples were meant to see, we're meant to see the resurrected Lord will provide for his disciples. He will feed his disciples who will be apostles. He will meet every need. He made breakfast for them. He even made a charcoal fire. The last time there was a charcoal fire in John's gospel, Peter warmed himself around it and denied Jesus. Now this time, Peter, cold and wet, is warming himself around this one with Jesus in his presence. The resurrected Jesus is showing his disciples in this new world of resurrection, I know your need. I am with you in this new world. And I am going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So he's teaching them carefully about himself. He's not changed as the resurrected Lord because he wants them to have rock solid confidence in who he is when he ascends to the father and they have this mission to carry out that was for them impossible. He's going to be with them. He's going to feed them. He's going to provide for them in ways they could never provide for themselves. So see this as Jesus reveals himself, that the mission of the church does not depend on our cleverness. It doesn't depend on our power. It is totally dependent upon divine power and divine wisdom. They were to learn and it to be so deep in them that it was instinctual. We live by hearing and obeying the word of the risen Jesus in the way that we should go that the church that they would be so pivotal and founding would not be an institution of human wisdom. Our job is like theirs in this way. We are to listen to what Jesus says and trust him and obey him. Our hope is the same as theirs, that the risen Jesus who was to them is the same to us. He's meeting the ordinary needs of his disciples and the same is true for us. Can you recount ways in your own life that the risen Jesus has been faithful to you? Think of some. Will he not be faithful to you in the future? He is showing he's not too great in his resurrection power to be unconcerned with ordinary needs and ordinary lives. He shows rather, I am employing all of my resurrection power for your good. He is showing, he is in the midst of his people in his resurrection power. All that is needed, Jesus will provide. Very honestly speaking, there's been plenty of times in my own life what I have not liked at all, what's been revealed about me 
in different situations. Maybe the way I've acted or the way I've reacted to a circumstance. Now, there are plenty of times when I've blown it. I can't say that's true even one time about Jesus. The more revelation, the more joy, the more glory, the more beauty and depth of majesty there is to behold. As his disciples would have walked away from this event, reflecting on it, that's what John is doing here. They would have seen, they were so in the dark, but the risen Jesus met them in it and was causing them to see his goodness and who he was and his glory and that he would feed them and he would continue to feed them. And they would see, as we're meant to see, the more fully we see him in his revealed glory, the more we are meant to love him. And like the disciples, simply want to be with him. These men who were so very lost, they knew they were found with Jesus. Jesus was preparing them for their mission by a very purposeful act of revelation. Revelation. Second, multiplication. Multiplication. He reveals himself by doing a miracle of multiplication. He takes no fish, multiplies it into many fish, so many, and yet, John tells us, verse 11, the net was not torn. So he can multiply fish. He can multiply more than fish. He can multiply disciples. F.F. Bruce is a New Testament scholar, and he pondered this reality of the unbroken net, and he writes, The gospel net will never break. No matter how many converts it catches, there is no limit to the number it will take. No boat is large enough to accommodate all the fish that are taken in the gospel net, just as no fold is large enough to accommodate all the sheep in the good shepherd's flock. So the crowds have come and gone in John's gospel. Only very few disciples remain. And the one who multiplies fish can multiply disciples. The disciples were meant to learn that the resurrected Lord with all of his power can multiply what man cannot multiply or bring about in his own power. Only the resurrected Lord can do this. Have you lost confidence in the resurrected Lord that even now he's doing this? He is not diminished in his power in any way by anything that the world thinks of him. Just as the disciples were meant to obey him when he said, cast their net, we must listen to him about what faithful mission means. Jesus has not lost his power. It would not have worked for the disciples to decide that they would cast their net somewhere else or that they were wiser than Jesus. Because he alone can multiply, we are to listen to him and trust that his ways, his means are our best. Even what we think is wise is so appealing. His wisdom is accompanied by his power. The gospel goes forward when we clearly speak it, when we teach it. I, I, I long for you to have this instinct and confidence In the gospel, even if you don't think you're an expert on this or that, you're so confident in the gospel as the power of God through which God 
gives life and he multiplies where there was nothing. He wanted his disciples confident that by his power he could multiply when he ascended to the Father. I mean, this is why we are, as Christians, so encouraged when we hear doors open for the gospel in other places, in hard places. It could be here. It can be beyond. We must be people who are investing locally and praying and thinking globally. So never be so small-minded that you think this is the only place where the Lord who multiplies is at work. And certainly we should never be so globally-minded that we fail to invest locally and to give ourselves here and in our local church. It was when the disciples had reached the end of their wisdom and power that the Lord Jesus multiplied the fish. And he's soon going to multiply the number of those who trust him and follow him, not through the disciples' power, but through them listening to and relying on him. Revelation and multiplication. And then finally, resurrection. Resurrection. This is the third time in John's gospel Jesus has appeared to the disciples. Each of them had a different purpose. Their ordinariness is on display here. Their ordinariness attests to the extraordinary reality and power of the resurrection. I would argue there are, there's no other way to explain the spread of the gospel and the rise of the Christian church in the world from these ordinary guys apart from something extraordinary, someone extraordinary in power. How else do you explain the fact that this went from nothing to Roman governors and rulers taking notice of it? And not just taking notice of it, opposing it with the full power of the state and the sword. By the power of the resurrected Christ, this gospel would go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome in a matter of decades, not by the power of the sword, but by the power of the Spirit. Such ordinary men, they staked everything on the power of the cross and the resurrection, and they were used by God to change history and lives forever. And the same is true today. Our Lord is so pleased to use ordinary pastors, ordinary Christians for extraordinary glory so that the glory is all God's. Just as the disciples did not have to be something they weren't, same is true for us. Don't ever underestimate power of trusting and obeying Jesus, of showing people simply who Jesus is and what he's done, of in your own weakness being bold about the cross and what Jesus accomplished there and the resurrection. It's true. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means he cannot fail. Have you grown bored with the gospel? You've taken the gospel for granted and think that we have to have all of this wisdom and and, and other things. You started to doubt its power. 
the resurrected Christ is not done with his resurrection purposes. He's not done with them in your life. He's not done with them in the world. Be eternally confident that the gospel is backed by resurrection power. I, I, I hope that if you're not a Christian or you're thinking about Christianity, that you are so compelled by the beauty and the glory of the resurrection, resurrected Christ as he's moving toward his disciples in a, such a kind way, he invites them to come near him and to eat. That there's this holy awe that they have of him such that they won't even say, is it, is it really you? There's this paradox in this passage of a holy and awesome Lord who dwells in the midst of unholy sinners who know who they are in his presence and yet love him. He says to them, come and eat. And he says to you, come and believe. He provided everything for his disciples to eat. He provides everything for you to believe and to have life that you were made for. He lived, he died for sinners. He was raised for the justification of sinners to be declared right in the God who is sight of the God who's made us all. And the resurrection means this very fundamentally. He is the Lord. The call of the gospel is not make Jesus your Lord. He is your Lord. He's the resurrected Lord. The call of the gospel is repent and believe in him and find life in the name of the Lord. Friends, by faith, you can be his. You can be with him, safely under him in this wicked world, safely with him and have life. I hope so badly that if you long or have questions about Jesus, you would talk to me or someone here who you know knows him. Jesus revealed himself in this way, brothers and sisters, fundamentally, that we might be so sure that he was raised from the dead. The account is so credible, the specificity of the numbers and the distance from the shore and how we see the fear and the awe of the disciples and their ordinariness and their confusion. John means for you to see the resurrection is credible and you can stake your life on it. I want this drilled into your heart and your minds because you're like me. We leave here every week and we go into a world that is living in an alternate history as if the resurrection did not happen, as if it's an illusion that can be just safely dismissed, kept in a corner or rejected outright. And so you just start to think because the world lives this way, maybe it's not real, maybe it's not authoritative. But real history is that Jesus of Nazareth was raised and the world cannot put him back in the grave. Real history is that history is headed to a day, a day of resurrection of all people of all time. Real history and reality right now is that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of the universe. So live your life in this way. If Jesus fails, you fail. The risen Jesus will not fail you. What is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our only hope. It's so easy to think that this was just supposed to be this way. And of course it was in one sense, but the disciples missed so much. But couldn't that be said of you and me? 
Can't we feel so uncertain in various moments? Can't we be unsure that we're living in an age of resurrection in which Jesus has risen and ascended? You don't have to be unsure of where history is going. Your faith and your faithfulness matters. You don't know every detail between now and then, but you know him and you can trust him that he is all that he revealed himself to be. No matter how hard the world tries, there's no alternate history. Jesus has been raised and is Lord. And he provides for the church everything that we need to be faithful to the mission. Let's trust him.